If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Today we're going to look at the historical reality. The historical reality of Christ. In this series that we've been going through, we learned that Jesus was the truth. We also learned that God was the one that created everything. And we're, we're focusing on a Christian worldview because the world has a different view of life in general. We talked about human dignity, that every person is made in the image of God because he was the one that created uh, the reproductive system. And so every life should have dignity. And when we look at our world today, um, I was a little surprised. Um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a, uh, a bill uh, banning abortions after 15 weeks. That was a little surprising to me. Um, it should be zero weeks. But uh, I'm not sure the political reason why he did that. But any, anyway. Then we looked at last week, we looked at the fall of man. That is that man has a sin problem and needs a savior and needs to be redeemed. Every person that is born is born into sin and therefore qualifies to be saved by the blood of Christ. Now today I want to look at something, uh, basically the historical reality of Christ because it has come under uh, fire within our culture. Let me just give you a couple of magazines here. One of them uh, says, did Jesus really exist? New evidence is now coming forward. There is definitely from Newsweek, the war on Christians, all centering on Christ. There's this one from Time Magazine. Who is Jesus? Startling new movie raises questions. Well, here's Here's the reality, that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus lived on this earth. So when we think about the worldview, they cast doubt on Jesus. But for believers, it is central to the life of Christianity. If you unravel Jesus, you unravel the gospel. And if you unravel the gospel, you unravel Christianity and we may as well just throw the Bible out because it's just a bunch of stories. We don't believe that. What we believe is that Jesus came from heaven. He came to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He took that sinless life, put it on the cross to pay for your sin and mine, and then we are then saved by the blood of Christ. Now let's look at what John writes here. First of all, Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. And we start with the witness. That which was from the beginning, RK, a point of time at the beginning. Now, scholars, uh, scholars are all over the place on this. I'll give you the two interpretations. One is the word beginning, which John uses in his gospel, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, there are some scholars that believe that when John writes here, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about the pre-existence of Christ. In, in other words, they tie 
this word beginning with John 1.1. One, one. Uh, that, that's certainly, certainly a possibility. However, context always dictates interpretation. Always. It is a default method by which you can understand exactly the word and the word that John uses, and I, I don't see this connecting here. It can mean, also, this RK can mean a definite point of time in which we look at Jesus' life. So given the fact of what's going to come behind it, the most logical choice is not the pre-existence of Christ, though that is true. Jesus has, there's, think, of, think of this for a minute. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. Go home, lay in bed and think about that. You have trouble sleeping because we're so, we're so used to time that we don't know non-time, at least in God's time. So think of it this way. There was never a time in which Jesus did not exist. He has always been. But here, I think what John's driving at, because we're going to unfold this, is it is the beginning point when God sent his son down to this earth and entered into the realm of humanity. That was in the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Now, John goes on to say this, and this is fascinating, very fascinating four verses of Scripture. Which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. What in the world is John talking about? Well, when you unpack, heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon and touched with our hands, you have here three senses. You have an audible sense in which John heard the voice of Christ. He heard Jesus speaking. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, John heard that audibly. Then there was a visual encounter. There was a visual encounter where Jesus appeared on the scene. He spent time with his disciples. And so he's saying, look, we not only heard Jesus, but we saw him physically in the flesh. So there you have the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And then you have John taking one step further, and he says, we have touched the body of Jesus. What? is John talking about? D. Edmund Hebert, his commentary, wrote this, their physical contact with the body of Jesus was no mere accidental brushing against his body, but a purposeful touching of his body to verify the physical reality. This verb was used by Jesus after his resurrection to challenge the disciples to prove the reality of his bodily presence. Why would John do this? Why would he present Jesus Christ in this manner in 1 John 1.1? Well, in the first century, there was what was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism prior to 70 AD was all over the place. So it had Egyptian religions, it had astrology, Judaism had some forms of it, Greek philosophy, and also Christianity. So prior to 70 AD, the, the, the 
real starting point of a full-fledged Gnostic religion took place after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Then you have this, you have this coalescing of ideas. Prior to that, you have this idea floating out here with different realms of it coming together and making a loose uh, connection. But when you get to the burning of a temple and after the temple, you start seeing Gnosticism beginning to become a mass. See, John wrote 1 John much later than 70 AD. So this tells me something. At this point, Gnosticism had reached a point where it was starting, starting to threaten the church. So it was coming into the church. Well, what was Gnosticism? That's a good question, and that's the uh, $64 question right there. So Sean Martin wrote an excellent commentary, uh, The First Christian Heretics. Gnosticism derived from the word gnosis, which is to mean to know or to have knowledge. And that's what really the word Gnostic comes from. It comes from this idea of having knowledge or to know something special. Matter was evil. According to Gnostics, matter was evil. So if you have a hum human over here, the body, we call it the sarks in the Greek language, or the flesh. This flesh was evil. I think we see that. We would agree with that. The spiritual was good. Therefore, Jesus didn't have a real body. So when John wrote this, we have heard him, we have seen him, and our hands have touched him. He is writing to a specific issue that was taking place in the body of Christ. There were people in the church that said Jesus could not have had a real body because the Gnostics believed that the body was evil. Therefore, there is no way that Jesus could have had a real body. Jesus was a figure. He was a much like his transfiguration. That's what they believed Jesus was. So there's no way, according to the Gnostics, at least in 75, 80, 90 AD, there was no way that Jesus could have had a physical body because you can't put human and divine together and it still be holy. So now we get to re really reason why John wrote the way he did. Only one way to heaven was through a special knowledge. So if you think of it this way, if you think of it this way, everything in this world is sinful. The Gnostics would totally agree with that. But the Gnostics would, the Gnostics say, since the body is evil, it can do nothing else except be evil. How do we escape the realms of this world and get to heaven? How do we do that? Well, the Gnostics said, the Gnostics said, we hold the key. The way that you escape the pollution of this world is through the knowledge that we have. And there was, took many, many forms. So what John's driving at here when he writes these opening words, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, and which we've touched with our hands, proves the real humanity of Christ. I know you all have heard this story. Maybe some of you come recent. 
I remember taking a history course at Florida State University. And the professor got to the point of Jesus. And if you, he was obviously a lost man, but he said everything that Jesus did. And I was like, wow, you get this at Florida State University? It's during the summer. I had to drive an hour to get there. But um, he went through the life of Jesus, talked about his teachings. And then you know what he said at the end? Jesus was a good man. Didn't deny the reality of Jesus, but denied the divinity of Jesus. I walked up to him after, after that class, and I said, that was really great, the way you presented Jesus, but he was much more than a good man. Jesus was the savior of the world. And he just kind of looked at me. I don't think it hurt my grade too much, but... Um, Gnostics held the key. So John here is identifying the reality, the physical reality of Christ. And then he goes, concerning the word of life, logos can mean message, but I think here it refers to Christ himself. Life, zoe, or real life. Listen, listen to me. The world in which we live thinks they are living, but they are not living. They do not have the life of Christ living in them. Therefore, the life that they are living is, if you want to say it this way, a mirage. Why do you think people go thane after thane after thane after thane to try to find some fulfillment in this life? Why do you think they do that? Because they're looking for Jesus. They're looking for that, that one thing in their life that can make them full and complete. And without that, you're left searching a sea of items. Not only was this life, according to John, physical, but it was also manifested in verse 2. The life was made manifest. Phanero is the Greek word there. Phanero means to cause something to be visible. So Jesus was not a theophany. Jesus was not a temporary manifestation of God. He was God. That life was manifest. It took form in human shape. We know that from the Gospels, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. That means he was born every way that we were, except he never lost his divinity, ever. There was never a time when Jesus lost his divinity. You notice manifest is used here two times in this verse. And it was manifest to us, John writes, secondly. John writes this in John 1. This is the Gospel of John, not 1 John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, dwelt among, means tabernacled. So if you could picture what Paul says, one day I'm going to fold up this tent and I'm going to go home to be with him. Jesus tabernacled among us. He, he was tented among us. And yet that tent represented humanity in all of its dimensions and all of its aspects. 
So when he dwelt among us, Jesus was fully man in every way, and he was fully God in every way. One professor when I was in Bible college said this, trying to figure that out is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. It's kind of hard to understand, but the reality is Jesus was fully divine and fully human. And John goes on to say in verse 2, And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. Uh, so we have right here four, four aspects about this life, about the life of Christ. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched, that life was manifested. The first thing about it, John was a personal witness. Let me, let me say this to all of us. If you are born again today, if you're a born again believer, you have a personal testimony. That personal testimony means that you came in contact with Jesus. That is something that the world needs to hear. That is something that the world needs to know. Let me encourage you as your pastor, share your personal testimony. It doesn't always mean that they're going to get it by Scripture and that they need to. You need to show them Scripture. But when you share your personal testimony, it can make a world of difference in the life of somebody that is lost that does not know the life, that does not know Jesus. And so when you're out there on the highways and byways of life and you are sharing your personal testimony, it makes a big difference. I still think, and I, I, I miss Emmett. I, I visited Emmett this week. Audrey and I both did. Uh, uh, Emmett told me the story of him walking by one of the bars over here, and I can't remember which one it was. And he went in. He said, I just felt like I needed to go in. Church people would go, <gasps> you don't go into a bar. Where do you think Jesus went? Anyway, Emmett said he felt led to go in there, and he wound up leading the guy to Christ. I told Emmett that meant so much, and I still remember that. He told me that years ago when Emmett was here and bothering me. <laughs> so, I, lo I love Emmett. I love Emmett. He, he knows it. Brothers and sisters, you have a testimony. You have a testimony. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get out there and tell people about Jesus. And then... Take them to the scriptures and show them. Secondly, Jesus is eternal. Again, no beginning, no end. Wrap your mind around that particular view. Think, think about that for a minute. Jesus was out of time in our sphere, and then he came in time, and now he's out of time, but there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He's eternal. And guess what? Because you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You are now eternal because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Eternal life does not begin when you die. You already have eternal life. Eternal life is something that is given to you 
by the Holy Spirit at the day that you trust in him, at that point, when you've trusted in him as Lord and Savior, you have then joined the realm of eternal. And when you breathe your last breath here, you see your Savior face to face. What a wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, people, the lost world out there, the lost world out there, unfortunately, they are eternal, but they're in a different realm. And why it's so important for us as a church, for us as individuals, to start sharing the gospel personally. Another thing that we look at here in the aspects of the life of Christ, number four, Jesus was with the Father, literally implies a face-to-face -face relationship. John writes it this way, Jesus was with the Father. So when Jesus says, to see me is to see the Father, he had a personal relationship with him. Number four, they proclaimed the life. John was not silent concerning Jesus. Neither should we be. Paul writes it, make the most of every opportunity. Share what you know about Jesus. Somebody's eternal life could be affected. As I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more astute at knowing when to say something and when not to. I've got several people that I'm in, I'm building relationships with now that I want to witness to them some point in the future, within the next couple of months. I want to be able to share the gospel with them. We like to isolate ourselves. I said this last Sunday, we like to isolate ourselves. We like to hang with our Christian groups. We like to gather together. Nothing wrong with that nothing at all but it can't be all that because we still live in this world and people still need to hear about Jesus and so John says that which we have seen that which was from the beginning when he came upon this earth we have seen we have looked at we have touched that life was manifest that life came uh, I've seen it it's eternal he's with the father and we also proclaim it I doubt seriously John would have not proclaimed Jesus. Jesus is the life, and also he offers fellowship. You will often talk of it in terms of fellowship, but and he you notice there's there's a repetition in these four verses. Here it is again, that which we have seen. And that which we have heard. It's kind of like my wife said to me several years ago, why do you repeat yourself? And I said, because you have to repeat yourself because people don't quite get it. Larson said you got to say it at least three times. And even then, it's a possibility of going out saying, huh? So John's saying it here. That which we have seen which we have heard we also proclaim to you the word pro proclaim is 
apangelo, apangelo, which means to tell or to inform. Uh, sometimes I go back and uh, sometimes I go back and I look at scholars from the the 1900s, 1800s. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, having found the honey, we cannot eat it alone. Having tasted that the Lord is gracious, it is the one, it is one of the first instincts of the newborn nature to send us out crying, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Buy without money or price. Charles Spurgeon. amazing it's amazing what people think how you get to heaven it really is it's quite, it's quite fascinating there's some people and I've met them over 33 years of pastoral ministry where there's a, there's a scale and the scale says well as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm good to go. The problem is the bad has to be dealt with totally. And the only way that that's dealt with totally is by trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Once that is done, the scale has already been paid for by Jesus. It's done. As far as the east is from the west, your sins have been forgiven. But I meet people a lot that say, I'm hoping that I get into heaven. Wait a minute. You want to know, you know you know that you get into heaven? Let me tell you how you know. It's not, oh, gee, I hope I get into heaven. No, it's not like that. John's saying, that which we've seen, we proclaim to you. And Charles Spurgeon, I love that. I love that quote, particularly, buy without money or price. Why? Because Christ did all the work for you and me. He went to the cross. He died on that cross, took the wrath of God. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, this is what I understand. At that moment, Jesus Christ was literally taking on the sin of the world on himself. And for the first time in all eternity... At that moment, when Jesus said that, he was separated from the Father. And then he said, it is finished, and he died. He went to hell. He took victory over Satan, and then rose, and victory, 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 victory. Wow. And that's what we need to be about. Now, the purpose, John writes, in proclaiming is this. Verse 3 that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship, you all know this. I know you all are Greek scholars. You know this word, koinonia. Koinonia means to be in a close relationship. So when we look at this word, when John writes here that you may have fellowship with us, and by the way, our fellowship is with the Father, uh, this is what you have. You have the Father and Christ and us all in a relationship. Paul writes it this way 
in Galatians, whereby I, the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, when you trust in him and put him in your heart. One of my absolute favorite scholars, he died several years ago, Dr. Curtis Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn wrote this. Uh, Fellowship calls to mind a tremendously important truth, namely that the Christian life is not lived in isolation. It's a life common to and shared by all believers. I want you to understand this morning that we are the family of God. That if you have fellowship with Christ, you have fellowship with us. This is our spiritual family. There is never a time when you are truly alone in this world, even though there may be times you feel like you're alone. I bet you if somebody in this church sent out an email to somebody else in this church, that person would rally around the side of that person and encourage and help them through it. You are never, ever, ever alone. Because you belong here. And our fellowship is with God through Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He went on to write some other things, but I didn't want to take up too much time with that quote. But I want you to realize that you're not alone in this world. There's other believers that will come alongside you and pray with you and love you and help you and encourage you. I know that it doesn't always happen, and that's sad. It should happen. But John says here that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, so Come join us. I can see my nickel's almost spent. Joy. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Kara. So... John says John says this if you've trusted Christ I want you to realize that he was real he was genuine you're part of us and that makes my joy absolutely complete he uses the word complete here playro which means to make full I, I think John's extremely concerned about the spiritual welf- welfare of the audience that he's writing to. He's writing to remind them Jesus is real. Remember, we touched him, we saw him, we spoke to him. That life was manifest, that life was eternal. And with the Father and is the Father, is God. 
And when you have trusted in that, you have quantania fellowship with other believers. And when the whole congregation knows that, his joy is complete. And wow. Christ is real. 